0: Well, we're uh, continuing this uh, series uh, in the Psalms, and, uh, and it's, for me, just been a really amazing uh, series going through this, very personal, very uh, helpful, very uh, just changing in the way that uh, even I approach the Lord and approach myself and approach even relationships and all kinds of things. And I know uh, a lot of you guys have been getting uh, hints of that, at least from me in the last uh, handful of weeks in particular Uh, Today, we're continuing uh, looking, uh, again, more at asking the Lord for provision uh, and the type of provision we ask for when we're going uh, just through life itself. And the last two weeks, we looked in particular uh, at uh, times of just hardship, times of struggle, uh, times of despair, times of anxiety. And uh, last week, we looked even more particularly at what kinds of things should we be reaching out to the Lord for? What should we be asking of Him? When we're in these times and this week kind of a part three but but definitely turning a, a really big corner on it we're going to be looking at the foundation or the basis for why we can even have confidence in asking for the things that we said we should ask for last week what happens for instance when the darkness doesn't actually lift in life What happens when things don't change? When you're asking the Lord for the things that you're asking him for, you're asking him whether it's to change circumstances or change your perspective or your heart or to build uh, deeper trust within you. What happens when things just don't change? You're in the same spot. What happens when the circumstances in life don't change? Uh, What happens when maybe that, that despair just continues to linger or maybe there's times when you just feel like you're like a ship lost at sea. You're just kind of floating, and you're just being tossed to and fro. And you really have no, the, the motor doesn't run, the sails are busted, and you're just kind of drifting, hoping that there's some kind of rescue mission somewhere. You're hoping that hope is uh, not too distant from you. But there are those times, and, and last week we talked about the things that we should be asking the Lord for in those moments, but today we're gonna be looking at why we can have confidence in the things that we ask the Lord for, even when it doesn't seem like anything is changing, even when it seems like there's no reason for us to believe that hope and change is actually around the corner. Those times when weeping is enduring for the whole night and we don't necessarily believe that joy is going to come in the morning, not necessarily a 24-hour period, but proverbially hope and joy coming in the morning. What do we base our confidence and our boldness in? What gives us fuel to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, even when all this stuff continues to linger? What is the basis and grounds for our assurance that hope is on the way, that joy is on the way? And so today, we're gonna be looking at Psalm 111, and I'm gonna read Psalm 111, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us today to shift our thinking, shift our source of confidence, to give us uh, an assurance that isn't based on anything false, but an assurance that gives us a great boldness, a a solid rock on which we can stand. So let's read Psalm 111 together. We'll be reading through verse one through 10, and then I'll pray. Praise the Lord I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He's shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All of his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people and he's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it Have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This church is God's word. Let's pray and thank him for it this morning. Heavenly Father, we want our hearts to overflow with the same type of expression that Psalm 111 speaks of. The same type of expression, I believe that even as Pastor Eric mentioned this morning, there's already this bubbling over, it seems, in our church. It's an expectancy that we're going to be coming here today to hear of your goodness, and we want to respond to your goodness today. For some of us, it might be out of a a discipline. For some of us, it might be that we're not really in a place of a natural or uh, kind of a, a normal place of overabundance, but we're disciplining ourselves. We're choosing today to honor you and worship you. And though that's not the most ideal place for us to be, it is so much better for us to be there than in a place of hardness of heart or total despondency. Sometimes we come here and we have a partial hardening of heart or there's something going on in our minds that's just causing us to maybe be bitter towards you or towards others. And yet, in spite of that, Lord, we want to come and we want to remember your works, the majesty of your work, the way that you provide for us, the work of your hands that are faithful and just, the way that you have blessed us tremendously. So help us, O Lord, this morning that you would bring to mind how incredible you are that we would receive that into our minds and hearts and prepare room for you in our minds and hearts today. Help us, Lord. Remind us of the covenant you've made, not just to us, but even the promise you've made to yourself in being faithful to all of your precepts and all of your word. It's in your son's mighty and sufficient name we pray. Amen. So this psalm, Psalm 111, uh, this is a psalm that celebrates God's works. Very simply, it's just a song of total praise, total thanks, and just awe and wonder over who God is and what he's done. And structurally, there's a few interesting things to note about this psalm. First of all, we wouldn't know this from our translation because we read in English, but this is a psalm that is written in alphabetical order. The beginning of each line starts with a consecutive uh, letter from the Hebrew alphabet And they do this for a couple reasons One just because it's just poetic just to do this But there's reasons why they do it One it's a reminder to the Hebrews Who would recognize that pattern It's a reminder that God's faithfulness And the, the content of this text God's faithfulness The way he provides the work of his hands His, his trustworthiness His covenant Is totally sufficient Totally expansive from A to Z God is faithful. So it reminds the the Hebrew readers of this. From A to Z, God is totally faithful. Nothing will pass by him, nothing will be dropped by him. But from A to Z, God is all of these things that Psalm 111 says. And that should be a great reminder to us that as we read this Psalm, we say God from beginning to end. In the Greek, and what we see sometimes in our New Testament, because the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament was in Hebrew primarily. But in the Greek, they would say he's the Alpha and the Omega, Alpha being A and Omega being our Z. And so that's why we say he's the Alpha the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the A to Z of our faith. His faithfulness covers from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega. But that's only one reason why they do this. The other reason is this, this is a helpful aid for those who would want to memorize the Psalms. And the Israelites would do this frequently. They would memorize the Psalms, because this would feed their prayer life and their praise life, their worship life, their singing life. Just like we memorized a lot of the songs we sung today. We sung The Stand. We haven't heard The Stand here in a little while, but a lot of you guys, you just knew the song. You would memorized it. It just came, you heard it, and you're like, oh, I love the song, I haven't heard this, and it just came out of your mouth because it was already in your heart, and you knew the words, and, and so it was more naturally flowing out of you, and your hands are raised because it's familiar to you. Well, they would do this with a lot of the Psalms, put them in an alphabetical order, so to speak, so they could easily memorize these these songs, these prayers. So this was a way that they would memorize and remember the God from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega. He is all of these things, and he's these things 100%. And that should serve as a great reminder for us. And many uh, commentators, even dating back hundreds and hundreds of years, Uh, would believe that this is one of the psalms that was probably sung during the Passover. So during the Passover, when they would celebrate this, there's a handful of psalms that are more particularly given to that time frame. And it's quite possible, at least once during Jesus' life, maybe even in Matthew 26, verse 30, when it says that him and the disciples, the night before the Passover, they sang songs together. It's very possible that maybe this psalm was the one that they sung the night of the Last Supper. If not that night, then maybe a previous Passover. But just thinking through that, reading through this psalm, and picture—if you could—just imagine Jesus the night before He dies, and He's with His disciples, and He's singing this: "I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and the company of the upright and the congregation. Greater the works of the Lord, study by all who delight in them." Full of splendor, he provides food for those who fear him. Imagine him, I don't know what the tune was, but imagine them just singing and what is going through his mind, his heart as he sings this song of praise to his father who provides all things. It's incredible just to think about the way these psalms are used throughout the entire history of God's people. And for us, that's why I consider it such a great privilege for us as a church to spend this time, though a short time, 10 weeks or so, focusing on this, but hoping that this becomes a greater discipline for us, a lifelong discipline to learn the songbook and the prayer book of God's Word. Now, other parts of the structure here, if you want to kind of glance down at Psalm 111 a little bit. Verse 1 is an invitation. It's an invitation to come and, come and worship. Praise the Lord this morning. And then verse 2 through 9 gives us why we should praise the Lord this morning. He provides. He's faithful. He's just. He's righteous. And then the bookend, verse 10, is a, is a commendation, an encouragement, an exhortation for those who practice this kind of praise. It's a way to say, if you, if you come and worship like I've requested in Verse 1, and if you praise Him for these things, 2 through 9, then 10 gives you this result. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. It's a commendation to those who remind themselves to worship the Lord in this way, to think about the Lord in this way. This reminder, this invitation, maybe even for those who, like last week or the week before, in a place of despair or despondency, or anxiety, or some kind of fear, or maybe you're maybe you're burdened with the guilt of your past, the shame of your past. We talked a bit about this last week. The importance of you, in, in many ways, coming to terms with what has gone on in your life. Not in a sense of getting over it, but that the Lord is getting you through it. And the importance of you being able to share your story with others, because of the great encouragement that you can bring to others. You just be amazed at the way that you will encourage other people and you're able to share your story, the faith that it builds even inside of you as you remember and you speak out loud the way that God has changed you. And sometimes we forget that God has changed us. You know, we kind of go through maybe a slow, gradual growth over five years, 10 years. And, but then when you start telling your story to people, you start recounting how you used to think, what you used to say, what you used to watch or look at or talk about. You kind of just walk away and go, well, I'm different. I kind of forgot how different I am than a few years ago. And it brings to mind these types of verses. God has provided for me. Sometimes I don't think he provides for me, but now I remember he's, he's provided for me. And this psalm serves as an invitation even for those who are down or in despair, downtrodden, Because when we get in that place, we get very focused just on the things that are going bad. Like I mentioned last week, me being kind of an eeyore, an owl that, you know, even when the weather's good, I'm looking down going, it's nice now, but there's a storm coming. (laughs) And this kind of a psalm is a great reminder to say, yeah, a storm might be coming, but just enjoy God's goodness right now. And he's going to be good when the storm comes too. It helps to keep focus. And that's what a psalm like this does. It invites us. To come in and not put all of our fears and all of our shame and not to ignore it and put our heads in the ground, but just to bring those things into perspective. God has been faithful. He's been faithful even in the dark times, even in the times of despair. He has been faithful and he's going to be faithful. And that's what we're going to look at today is the basis of his faithfulness that can give us a hope and give us strength and give us strong encouragement Whether we're in good times or bad, it doesn't matter, but how we can base the sureness of our salvation and God's faithfulness, what we can base that on. So this psalm, as I mentioned, is strictly a song of praise. It's unlike Psalm 77. There's nothing here about, God, I am speechless. I can't sleep at night. Your promises have stopped. It's very different than Psalm 77, very different than Psalm 88, even different than Psalm 27 that we saw last week, which had a mixture of recalling the, the struggles and things like this, but also the good parts about the Lord and His faithfulness. It's different than that in that there is nothing but positive hopefulness in this psalm. And I just love how the psalms are so diverse like that because our lives are diverse. But some days, as I mentioned in the last couple of weeks, some days your, your prayer is just like Psalm 88, no hope in sight. But hopefully in a day or two or a week or two, you're going to be praying Psalm 111. But life just ebbs and flows like this, and this is part of what sanctifies us and changes us, what helps us trust God in all things. So looking back here at uh, Psalm 111, I want to focus in here. uh, I'm going to read through uh, 2 through 9 again, but focus in on a a few things, a few points that uh, the psalmist makes here. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. We should study the works of the Lord. This is what helped Asaph two weeks ago in Psalm 77 bring the old stories to mind. When, when even meditation, he fainted when he meditated and he would think of the name of the Lord and he would just groan. Oh God, I can't even think about you right now. But because he had studied the works of God, the works of God rose to the top in his mind and in his heart. And he remembered the story of God's faithfulness towards Moses and the Israelites, the Hebrews. So we should study them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. So he's the one who causes us to remember these things. He's written them down in his word. He buries them. He helps us bury them in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us who brings these things out of the deep, dark, filing cabinet of our hearts when we're being stubborn or prideful or just focused in on the wrong things. It's the Holy Spirit who Causes us to remember these things why because the Lord it says in verse 4 is gracious and merciful Because he loves you church This is why even when you're stubborn even when you're being obstinate His Holy Spirit if his Holy Spirit is living and dwelling inside of you because he's gracious and merciful He will draw those things out of the depths of your heart and let them float to the top so that you can remember the good works of the Lord and his faithfulness He provides food, in verse 5, for those who fear him. This is one of the verses we're going to be focusing on this morning. He remembers his covenant forever. He's shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. Another verse we'll be focusing in on today. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All of his precepts are trustworthy. All of his laws, all of his word is, you can trust it because they're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The Psalms also say that his word is fixed in the heavens. It's immovable. We can't even reach it. If we wanted to move it, we couldn't. It's in the heavens, fixed there. We can try to change God's word. We can distort God's word in our own way, but that doesn't actually change God's word. It maybe changes the way we believe it. Maybe changes the way we teach it. We start teaching it wrongly, But no matter how hard we try, we cannot change God's word because it is fixed in the heavens forever and ever. It is trustworthy and true. He sent redemption to his people. Another verse we're going to focus in on. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Church, the Lord will give you all things. He will give you all things. We sung a song recently, Psalm 34, and we read it uh, on a Sunday morning He gives all things to his people. I know sometimes we think, well, no, he hasn't given me that Ferrari yet. So where is that at? But that's not what the word, so we can twist the word however we want, but that's not what that is saying. He is going to provide for us every single thing that we need for life and godliness. He will keep his promise. He will give us the inheritance that is due to us, not truly due to us, but due to us, because of what his son has done. If you want, you can follow me to Matthew chapter 6. As a reminder, the words of Jesus himself during his ministry, his life here on this earth. And this is right following the Lord's Prayer. And if you recall, I've mentioned this a few times. The first couple weeks we got into the, the study on the Psalms, we talked about how the, the, the Lord's Prayer is kind of a very miniature version, sort of a uh, topical headings where the Psalms expands those things. That the Psalms talks about God's holy name, talks about His will, talks about how He provides, talks about how to lead us out of temptation. All the themes of the Lord's Prayer are found in the Psalms but expanded. And if you were to wrap up the Psalms in just a couple sentences, Psalm 1 through 150, you could just recite the Lord's Prayer. They're very much kind of in concert with each other. And so right after the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, this is what Jesus says to us, to remind us. After he teaches us how to pray, here's what he says. Therefore, therefore in light of what I just told you about prayer, fasting, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Just look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you of more value than they are? If he takes care of them, don't you think he's going to take care of you? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. They don't make clothing. They don't know how to sew. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious Saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? The Gentiles, those who don't believe in God Almighty. The Gentiles seek after all those things. They make their life about that. They worry about those things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need all those things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The righteousness that Psalm 111 is speaking of here. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you what psalm 111 says he gives food to those who fear him he gives wisdom to those who fear him he's remembered his covenant forever he commands his covenant forever so therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow because tomorrow will be anxious for itself sufficient for the day is its own trouble don't worry about tomorrow you got enough things to think about today and i know that many of us can be sitting here thinking to ourselves you you know i don't want a ferrari i don't want that but but I just can't see the Lord at work at all in my life. I see other people being blessed. I see other people that know the Word more than I do, or love the Word more than I do, or they just seem to have their act together. In church, this is why it's important for you to share your faith and share what the Lord has done in your life, because there's someone next to you that feels like they don't, they don't live up to the standard that they see around them in the church. There's someone in your life that thinks that they're not worthy to be called a Christian because they look around at other Christians and other Christians act like they got all their, their stuff together. And so the, that, this makes them insecure. This makes them fearful. This makes them put up a, a wall up. Makes them not want to be vulnerable because they think that everyone else has it together. So they're worried about how people perceive them. They're worried about how God is going to provide, and they think, oh, the Lord's not working in my life. There's many people, and and all of us to some degree go through times and seasons like this. You might say to yourself, I just don't don't feel the Lord like I used to. I just don't sense His tangible presence. I don't really sense His love towards me like I used to, or like it seems like those people do. I've been seeking after the Lord, but nothing i've been reading the psalms every day but nothing i've been praying but still nothing god has said this and it seems like he's doing that in other people's lives but but not me there are times when we don't feel or sense or think the lord is being faithful to us that he's not fulfilling these promises that he gives us we don't see him tangibly moving in our life the way that maybe. It seems like he does in others, and we don't feel as good as other Christians seem to be. We're not as good as them. God probably isn't blessing me in the same way he's blessing them because they're better Christians than I am. You might feel very distant from God. You might feel irrelevant to God or irrelevant to the church or irrelevant even to your family because you feel like your faith is not strong enough. Or maybe you feel like your family or your friends look down upon you. Or maybe your family and your friends, you just you think, or maybe they actually are just suspicious of your faith. I want to remind you of something before we continue and move on, that these types of thoughts and struggles, these are these are real. This is common. You're not abnormal. You're not weird. This is, this is just how life is. Some of the greatest men and women of faith throughout church history have had these moments, even doubted their own salvation. Great men and women of God, even at some times, have even doubted whether or not God is even real. And we get in these places, and because everyone else puts on the show... We start just beating ourselves up and it gets darker and we get more distant, but we have to remind ourselves that this is part of life. This is what happens a lot of times and it's psalms like these and the truth that we're going to be digging into right now that helps remind us of what the foundation of our faith really actually is, what the basis of our assurance of our faith really actually is. If you struggle with these things, you are not as lost as you think you are. There are probably many people in this room that are in the same exact spot as you. Psalm 40. I'm going I'm to tell you about someone right now. David. Psalm 40. If you'd like to read it uh, in your Bible, if not, it'll be up on the screen. Just three verses here. Listen to what David said here. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. What does that mean? That means that he was in a pit of destruction and a miry bog. Right? David, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, was himself in a pit of destruction and a miry bog. Have you ever felt like you are in a pit of destruction or a miry bog? So did David. David. But then he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, it's important, I think, to know that we don't know how long David patiently waited for the Lord. Maybe it was a day. Maybe it was a month. Maybe it was a couple years. We, We don't know. And for many believers, you might be patiently waiting for the Lord for seven years, eight years, maybe to the day you die. And that day doesn't come until you are face-to-face with Christ Almighty on the new heavens and earth. But in the meantime, whether this is a day or a week or a year or a decade, we wait patiently for the Lord. In these times of despair, in these times of being downtrodden or being fearful, we wait patiently and we cry out to Him. Just like David did, we cry out, and we wait patiently. God does not have a timetable, and we can't command a timetable. But we wait patiently for the Lord. He does provide all that we need, and He will provide all that we need. The question we're going to ask ourselves today is, why? Why does He provide for us all that we need? What is the basis? And this is going to give us our assurance for our faith today as we continue to seek after the Lord. And when we're in a time of a a holding pattern and things aren't changing, we're confused, we're lost, we want to pray and praise as Psalm 111 speaks, but we're in this holding pattern, this waiting pattern like Psalm 40. What do we do while this time doesn't seem to change? What is the greatest work of God? Because the greatest work of God is what gives us insight into how we can have confidence for the the lesser things of God. What I mean by that is this, is that every night when our family prays together, we invariably thank the Lord for the many blessings that He gives us, just the simple things. And when I say simple things or lesser things of God, I don't mean that they are small things, but I mean they're lesser than the greatest thing, which is the gift of salvation. So we'll oftentimes pray, and we'll, we'll pray and thank God for the, the, the smaller things that are still great things, like the family he's given us, the home we live in, the friends we have. We, we thank the Lord for our church family every single night. We thank the Lord for just the blessing of being able to be outdoors and play baseball with friends and have great weather. We thank him for all these great things, but we always have a time where we will say, but Lord, we know that the only reason we get all these things is because of your greatest work. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us this grace and mercy because of your love that you've shown us through giving us your son. You have patience and mercy and grace towards us because of your son. The greatest work, the greatest promise, the greatest gift that God gives us is not our friends and our family and our homes, but it's the gift of his son. and It's the gift of the promise that God has made to us and made sure and secured through his Son. And because of that, this is why we can depend on and put our hope and trust in all these other promises that God gives us. This is what gives us the patience to endure even when the darkness doesn't lift. It's the fact that God will provide all these things and Psalm 111 gives us an important clue or even a solution for why we can have confidence that God will provide all things for us. Look at verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him, and this gives us the reason why. He remembers his covenant forever. A covenant, in simple terms, is a relational promise of commitment. It's not just a cold contract like a business contract, but it's a relational promise of that's why we call marriage a marriage covenant. We've made a, a promise one to another to be committed in a relationship out of love, not out of contract. Or if you do this, I'll do that. and No, there's this relational commitment. And so often in the Psalms, we see this topic of God's covenant and His promises. The psalmist thinks apparently that it's very important to sing about and to learn how to pray about the the sureness of God's promises, that this should be an important factor in your time of prayer. The songs that we sing on Sundays and the songs that you sing throughout the week, the way that you pray, the psalmist continually speaks about God's promises and the sureness of his promise. It's an important aspect of prayer that when we ask God for things, we shouldn't just ask him for things, but we should remind him of why we can ask for things from the Lord. Here's a couple examples, Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction. Church, have you ever had affliction in your life? Have you ever wanted comfort in a time of affliction? Well, Psalm 119, 50 says, here's how you can have comfort in your time of affliction. Your promise gives me life. Psalm 119, verse 76. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servants. The promise that he's made to his servants. Let that comfort me. Psalm 119, verse 116. Uphold me, so sustain me. Keep me patient, keep me moving forward. Don't let me give up. Give me strength according to your promise. Not according to my strength. Not according to my ability. No, the psalmist is, is pleading the promise of God. God, I've got nothing left in the tank here. I'm empty. I'm running on fumes. The fumes have run out. So can you uphold me according to your promise that you made to me? According to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. I'm going to hope in you. I'm going to wait patiently that you will set my feet upon that rock. But right now I've got nothing left. Will you do it though for me according to the promise that you made to me? Plead the promise of God. Don't just beg him to give you more strength and help me to endure. No, plead the promise of God. Put it back on him, that's what it's there for. He gave you this promise, so call upon that promise. Learn to plead the promises of God. But this one here, Psalm 105, verse eight and nine. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant, the relational promise of commitment that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. I want to bring us, and I think you should open up with me because it's 18 verses here. I want to bring you to Genesis chapter 15 this morning because we've got to know what this means, this promise made to Abraham and why it's so important for us because the psalmist thought it was important for us. Genesis 15, verse one, we'll read through this. I'll try to tighten it up a little bit because we won't be able to go in the depth of this section here, but this is God speaking to Abraham, who is Abram at this time. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Here's the vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. It's very similar to Psalm 27. The Lord's my my, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So what was going on here is that Abram and his wife, they were old. They didn't have any kids. And God made a promise that he would multiply his family, make his name great, but he had no kids. And so he had a servant, the, the head of his household is this guy, Eliezer, and traditionally what you might do to pass on and, and to give your inheritance, you'd give it to the, the person who, who ran your household. So he didn't have kids to give his inheritance to, so it was going to go to Eliezer. And God says, don't, don't worry. I, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Your reward's going to be great, but Abram's like, oh, you can't do this, Lord. I don't have any kids. You haven't You haven't fulfilled your promise. You haven't given me what you've promised me, and, and don't we do this? The Lord says, I'm going to provide all things. And then we say, Oh, but God, you haven't provided this. Oh, but God, where is this? Oh, but God, how come this isn't changing? Oh, how come my marriage isn't changed? How come my kids haven't changed? How come I'm still in this financial mess? God, you have not. We're doing the same thing that Abram does here. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. You're not upholding, you're under the deal here, Lord. And a member of my household is going to be my heir. Meaning not his his children household, but the head of his household, Eliezer. So recognize here that Abram is pointing to what he doesn't have. Not pointing to the promise of God. He's focused so much on what he does not have. And he's accusing God now of not providing because he doesn't have. And so God makes this promise, but Abram says, but Lord, you didn't. Lord, you haven't. And what he's really intrinsically saying here is, and Lord, you're not gonna. But verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, speaking of Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, you, so shall your offspring be. You're gonna have that many children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, And he believed the Lord. Finally, Abram repented and believed the Lord, put his faith in the Lord, and God counted it to Abram as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God himself is reminding him of his past. But he said, still a little doubt in Abram, even though he was righteous, He said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Can you give me some kind of assurance here? Can you put this in writing? And he said to him, all right, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, right down the middle from nose to rump, sorry. Cut them in half, laid them down, each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, this was a common practice in this time. If you made a contract with someone, you would take an animal, cut him in half, put him down, and then the two parties making this promise, maybe it was a business deal or something, they would walk between, and so instead of just a handshake or signing your name, you would do this, and it were was, was saying to the other party, if I break my end of the deal, so shall it be, you can cut me in half like these animals. They took their contract very serious. And so this is what they would do as a, as, a, as a solemn swear to each other. Now when the sun now here's what happened, though, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. God caused Abram to fall asleep. And it says later that God himself walked between and made this covenant with himself. He knew that Abram could not uphold his end of the bargain. He knew that Abram would be faithless at some point. He knew that you and I would fail at some point. So God did not make a contract with us where only if we uphold our end of the deal, then he'll be faithful. He knew that you would not be able to. He knew that I would not be able to. He knew that Abram would not be able to. So God said, I'm gonna make you fall asleep so you can't even walk through this, this covenant. I'm gonna walk through the covenant myself, and I'm gonna make the promise to myself that I will remain faithful to myself and also you. So this is all on me, this is not on you, it's all on me. Now if God had solely committed just to Abram, it makes sense why Abram and the Israelites singing these songs would maybe have some doubts. That when they sing Psalm 111, oh Lord, you've remembered your covenant, but you know, Abram failed in that covenant, so gosh, I'm not really sure if we can really call upon you with boldness. If, If the promise was made solely to Abraham, Psalm 111 loses a lot of its power. If the promise was just made to you and to me, my prayers all of a sudden lose a lot of its power. My hope loses a lot of its power. If this covenant is decided a lot on me, 50% or even 1%, all of a sudden, I don't have much of a chance. But look again at what Psalm 111, now verse nine, what it says, he doesn't just remember the covenant he made to Abram, but verse 9 says, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. It's not just in the past, church. It's in the future. It's not just, hey, I remember the promise I made, but if you, if you break the promise in the future, though, different story. So far you've done good, so I'm going to make good on what I've promised in the past. But hey, in the future, though, you better be careful. No, he says, I remembered my covenant from the past, and I've commanded my covenant even into your future. My faithfulness is going to endure forever towards you. I've promised myself in the past that I'll remain faithful to Abraham and all of his offspring in church. Even if you're not Jewish, you've been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. You are a son or daughter of Abraham through faith. Okay, so if God has made a promise to the stars that represent Abraham's offspring, that promise is for you. That promise is for me because we've been adopted into that line through faith. And so if God has remembered his covenant to Abraham and he commands his covenant to Abraham to remain faithful forever, then that means his promise to you is also forever. So you can rest on this assurance that he's not just remembered the past, but you're on thin ice for the future. He commands his covenant to stay true even in the future. And he has this other curious f- phrase in verse 6. He's sworn Or he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. He promises a future inheritance for his people. He promised Abram not just people and offering, which, look around, this is the fruit of that promise. But he also promised to give him the land. But if you remember also what Jesus said, he said the meek shall inherit the earth. Not just a little sliver, Israel, but we're going to inherit the whole earth. God is going to redeem and make new this whole entire earth and give His people the land, the whole entire globe. So He says, "I'm going to give you the inheritance of the nations." You might recall a few years ago, for those of you who've been here for the entire four years, we've been a church. First Peter, in your notes, it should say chapter one, verse three through nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. We have an inheritance, church. An inheritance that is imperishable. Remember this, imperishable. The shelf life of your inheritance is forever. You can't spoil it, even if you tried, Even with all your rebellion, all your sin, If you have been truly saved and been born again, your future inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, just like God's word, so you can't get your grubby hands on it. You can't dirty it up with your sin. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded. It is God's faithfulness, his strength that is guarding you. And we can know that this inheritance is so protected and true because in Hebrews 6, it says that he swore to himself. There's kind of an exposition, a teaching on the chapter that we just read in Genesis. Hebrews chapter 6, you can read along with me. When God made the promise to Abraham... Since God had no one greater to whom to swear, you know how you do that? You know, you, I swear by my mother's grave that I'm gonna keep this promise, right? So, you know, you, we do that. We swear by something that's really high. I give you my word, I give you whatever. Well, God has nothing greater to swear by other than himself. What's he gonna swear by? <laughs> so because God had no one greater to whom he could swear, he swore by himself. It's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? But, but this is the reality. He's like, well, let's see. I can, I can promise Abraham, but that's not that great. You know what, I'm just going to swear to myself. How about that? That will really make this covenant sure. So he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, even though it's funny because when you read through Genesis 15, it doesn't seem like he was that patient. God's given him a little, a little gift there. <laughs> he obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, whenever we have arguments, an oath makes for final confirmation. We don't split animals in half, but we shake, we sign something. That's what we do. So when God desired to show more convincingly, that's an important word there. He wants you to be convinced of the power of his faithfulness. He doesn't want you to, to wonder if he's gonna continue to love you. He doesn't want you to wonder if he's gonna remain faithful to you. He wants you to be so convinced that he's going to be faithful to you forever and ever and ever. So what did he do to convince you? Here's what he did. To show you to, convincingly to the heirs of the promise. That's you and me. He wants his heirs, those who are going to inheritance the promise made to Abraham. He wants those heirs to be convinced of the promise. So he's going to show the unchangeable character. God cannot change. So he swears with two unchangeable things, his purpose and his character he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by these two unchangeable things, his character and his purpose, in which it is impossible for God to lie, God cannot go back on his word to himself. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that has been set before us. That we would be convinced, we have a strong encouragement that we can be convinced that hope is on the way weeping might endure for a night or even for a lifetime but joy comes in the morning we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul this is what keeps us grounded church even when the darkness won't lift you don't sit there and go i just gotta muster up a bunch of faith so that i can praise god like psalm 111 No, when you're in that place, you say, God, I'm I'm weak right now, but you're strong. I'm like Abram. I I can't uphold this, but you can and you will. If God has solely committed himself just to you, it makes some sense why you would doubt his faithfulness, but even that actually doesn't make sense because if he swore to you, he swore to you. I mean, he's not going to break that one either. But he goes beyond that. He swears to himself. He says to you and to me, you can trust me. You can praise me because of my wondrous works. I'm going to remember my covenant. I'm going to remember that I swore to myself. I'm not going to forget that. Study my works. Delight in them. I provide food for those who fear me. I remember my covenant forever. I'll give you the inheritance of the nations. An inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, undefiled. The works of my hands are faithful and just. All my precepts are trustworthy. I'm just, I'm just paraphrasing Psalm 111 here putting it in first person for the Lord as a strong encouragement for us. My works are established forever and ever. My word is established forever and ever, fixed in the heavens, to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. I've sent redemption to you, my people. I've commanded my covenant. I've commanded the promise I made myself. I've commanded it to sustain forever because my name is holy, and I can't lie, and I can't change. You're gonna change, but I didn't make the promises to you. I I promised myself. So rather than doubt and living in fear and living in guilt and shame, church, he calls us to believe. He calls us to wait patiently, to trust and to fear him. And for those that do, the encouragement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And this wisdom we receive, there's a quote you can read along with me in your notes here from A.W. Tozer says, wisdom is the ability to devise a perfect ends, so perfect results, and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means, the way by which it happens. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. We don't have to wonder or worry if God has the future, because God has perfect wisdom. And wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to everything, the beginning from the end, the alpha to the omega, And is thus able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. God is working in your life with flawless precision. You don't have to wonder because he promised he'll remain faithful to himself. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, but then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. All his acts are as pure as they are wise and as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be done, better done, but a better way to do them could not be imagined. You ever wonder, God, why couldn't you teach me this through another means? Why through suffering? Why through pain? You know why, church? Because this is the best absolute way that he does it. He brings you to a better depth than through another means. You can trust his way. God's work cannot be improved upon by finite creatures like us. You might think that you could have a better plan to learn some kind of lesson or learn wisdom, learn humility, but you cannot improve on God's plan. Without creation, if God had not created all things, including us, His wisdom would have been remained forever locked in the boundless abyss of the divine nature. No one would ever know about it. You'd, it would still be totally wise, we just would never get to experience it. But God brought about His creatures into being. He created us so that we would enjoy them, so that He might enjoy them, and that we may enjoy Him. So if you're His church, you are His heir. And every heir has an inheritance, and his praise endures forever because he has promised his covenant to endure forever. I want to close with this Romans eight thirty one, and then we'll pray. I read through up until Romans eight thirty last week, and I wanted to close this sermon with Romans eight thirty one through thirty nine. Paul said, "So what do we say about all these things? Well, if God is for us." If he's made a promise to us and to himself, well, then who can be against us? If he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up, he gave Jesus up for all of us, well, how will he not also with him graciously give us all other things? Think about it, he's given us his best already. Why would he not give you everything else you need? Well, I'm gonna give you the Cadillac, but I'm not gonna give you the cup holder, sorry. I can't afford that, right? It doesn't make sense. If God has given you even his own son and his son's death and salvation, why would he not give you every single thing else that you need, just like Psalm 111 says? Who can bring any charge against God's elect, meaning his people, those that he's chosen, those that he has caused to become Abraham's sons and daughters? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? So who can separate us from the love of Christ? Could tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even in all these things, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him, through his covenant promise, not through our strength. For I'm sure, I'm convinced... I have a great and strong hope, a strong encouragement that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else. If I forgot anything, Paul says, I'm just going to include it in this little category called anything else in all of creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because God has sworn to himself that he'll keep you and never forsake you. Let's pray and thank the Lord for these great promises. Thank him for all that he's done for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We're amazed. God, that you have wanted to convincingly show us your heirs of the promise. that Your character and your purpose, your word will not change they are fixed in the heavens where we can't get our hands on it, you've sworn to yourself that you'll remain faithful to yourself. You've commanded your covenant forever, that you will provide for us all that we need. And even when things aren't changing in our life, we can step back and we can remind ourselves of the great faithfulness, not just that you've shown us and Abraham and David and Moses, but the great faithfulness that you've sworn to yourself even if you were able to break a promise to a sinful enemy, which you can't, if you've promised, then you've promised. But even if you were, God, we can know and be convinced that you cannot break a promise against yourself because you can't break the promise. You can't break your word. So we thank you for this strong encouragement, this sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. We want to come to you, Lord. We want to praise you and remember your wonderful works. Because as we do that, Lord, we grow in a fear and respect and honor and love for you. And, God, this is what gives us wisdom, gives us discernment, and matures us and changes us. So we thank you, Lord. We love you. And it's in your son's incredible and sufficient, powerful name that we pray. Amen. Amen, church.